The New Ghost Stories podcast is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at horrifiedmag. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we delve into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. Now we return to case number 65 for part two of Another Face in the Crowd. The following story has been shared under an agreement that respects the right of the subject to remain anonymous. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that anonymity. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the places, people or events that feature in this story, I ask that you not reveal any knowledge or information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. I was in a state of sheer panic for I don't know how long before I was able to ground myself again. I had to remember I was hallucinating. This wasn't real. They weren't real. It was my mind playing tricks with me. The fucking pills. I looked up the number of NHS direct on my phone, still crouching and afraid to show myself in the window. I got put through to this woman and explained to her that I was taking these pills and was getting side effects. Typically for me, I was too afraid to tell her the full extent of the madness, even in this crisis. I still had room to feel ashamed and embarrassed. She asked me what the hallucinations were like. I said it was like shadows moving, that I could see grey shadows walking around of their own accord. She said that didn't sound like a typical side effect of the medication. And I asked her what that was supposed to mean to me. I wasn't making this up. She said to stop taking the pills immediately, which was fine because I'd already forgotten that evening's dose. After less than two weeks on them, I shouldn't experience bad withdrawal. She said she'd leave a message in my surgery for my doctor to contact me in the morning. I entered the call and sat for a little while longer under the window. It must have been almost an hour later before I dared to look again through the glass. I was just on my knees, peering over. And the street was empty once again, nothing but the passing traffic. But no amount of telling myself it was all a fantasy was enough to make me sleep that night. I did not sleep a wink. I phoned in sick to work next day. That's how bad it was. Normally I wouldn't have the guts to do anything like that. I just stayed at home all day, lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. Dr. Lund phoned late morning. He said it was extremely unusual for patients to experience hallucinations, especially as intense as I described. I didn't want to go on to something else. I agreed to meet in a few days, as soon as I could get off work. In the meantime, it would take a little time for my meds to leave my system, and I might feel some mild withdrawal symptoms. As long as I didn't see those things again, I frankly didn't care. Now it was Friday. I had the whole weekend to recover, but I didn't dare leave the house. No matter how much I told myself it was all in my head, I didn't care. There wasn't much food about. I was living on odds and ends from the back of the fridge and freezer, but I didn't feel much like eating anyway. Depression does that to you, takes away your appetite for pretty much anything. Christ knows what I used to do on those weekends, those empty, pointless weekends. The hours just meandered by and I'd sit around watching the TV or playing the PlayStation, 
hoping at some point either might lift my mood even if only slightly. But Monday eventually came around again. With a great deal of anxiety, I pulled myself out of bed and out of the door. That must have been the longest commute of my life, and on British transport, that's really saying something. When I reached Liverpool Street, I started to tremble uncontrollably. I started to pour with sweat. My heart started to race, and my stomach began to churn. But there was no time to stop and worry. The crowds have no patience for anyone who stays still. I was swept along by the masses and ended up back on the escalator, floating up to ground level. I passed through the barriers and found myself back in the main hall, and as the people busily swept through from one end to the other, I looked among them and could see no sign of the grey shapes, the shadows. I started to get my breath back, relief washed over me. I had nothing to fear, the illusions had gone. And the relief of that almost made the day go smoothly. Lessened the pressure behind the cork. At perhaps the easiest, least uncomfortable day I'd had in a long time, I just kept quiet, hidden my corner of the office, and the hours passed relatively smoothly. It was the same the next day, too. Dr. Lund was keen to start me on some other medication, but I still refused. I got quite snappy with him. Therapy, proper therapy, was what I needed. I wasn't going to put myself through the same nightmare again. I survived this long in my desperate state. I could last longer. But then I started to cry, which made both me and the doctor question whether I really could or not. I said I'd have to consider it. We had another appointment in a week. Until then, things went back to normal, one heavy day after the next. It's hard to spend every morning wondering why you're getting up, wondering why you're carrying on, to feel like you've got no future. But if not this week, then maybe the next you'll find yourself under a train, in the grip of a noose, flat out on the road, to feel like it's just inevitable, that one day the time will come when you'll just reassign yourself to it, and take a leap off something or other. Those are the really scary times, not the hysterical moments. Not the times when you want to cry out or crawl under the table. It's the time when it all seems so rational, when you face the possibility of suicide with a sense of calmness and inevitability. But there was worse to come. The landlord was sending over a cousin to service the boiler, so I had to make sure the place was clean and tidy, so he wouldn't give a negative report on me and get me in trouble. I'm in my room cleaning the window when I hear the floorboards creak on the landing. I'm alone in the house, there's no TV or music on, so I notice it. And when it happens again, I realise someone is in the flat with me. There are people walking in the hall. The sound starts in my ear. Their sound, the hiss, in my house. And I can't see them now, I can only hear them. I can hear their call and I can hear them on the floorboards. The cheap plastic panel floorboards creak under their weight. They're here in the room with me. I see floorboards sink under their weight. The hiss grows louder. They're there standing right in front of me. I fall to the floor, crawl up against my wardrobe. The sound is unbearable. I can't see them, but I can sense them, feel them lingering over me. Then the hissing sound changes. The high-pitched whistle isn't a whistle at all. It's whispering, voices, too fast, too indistinct. Hard to understand like the sounds cartoon characters make when they whisper. An undistinguishable jumble of words, but they are words. They're there, hidden and undecipherable. I whine and squeal like a frightened animal. I couldn't bear it. Why couldn't they leave me alone? What did they want with me? I just wanted them to stop. I couldn't take the voices anymore. My head was full of them. I could feel their presence all over me like static all over my skin. Stop it, I yelled. Stop it. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. I cried. I curled myself up into a ball, screamed into the rug, and slowly the sound receded. I opened my eyes and looked up. The room was still empty. I thought maybe I was alone. 
but the floor creaked again. The sound of footsteps. But footsteps walking away. I don't know how many there were. How they'd got in or even got out. But there were many. It was a whole group that had come after me. The ridiculous irony of it all. I spent my life wanting to be noticed by people. To get their attention. Now I was being pursued and haunted by these things. And I didn't know if I was alone or not. No doors were open. They could have still been in the flat with me. And I didn't know what to think or whom to turn to. I held on to the idea, and I had nothing else to hold on to, that it must have been a residual side effect of the medication. The drugs were still exiting my system. Maybe that was why I'd only heard them, not seen them. But that barely rang true. Why now? After all those days, and why so intense? And the whispering, the voices, what were they saying? What did they want? And things were about to get worse. So much worse. I arrived at work the next day to a shitstorm. There'd been a fuck-up on an ad, a compliance issue, something I'd missed. It's hard to explain without getting too technical, but there was a disclaimer I was supposed to have included that I'd forgotten to put on. It was from a week or so before when I was at my worst and I'd just completely forgotten. But the company had been in trouble with the regulator for this sort of lapse before, and our competitors loved to leap upon this kind of mistake and report us for it. It's so totally unfair! Investors can flush millions down the toilet in dodgy deals with something like this. Total small fry and I get hung out to dry. I'm pulled into my boss's office first thing. He's relatively sympathetic, though he is critical that this happened once before. May I point out that this was two years ago when I barely started and been thrown in the deep end without enough training or supervision. He understands that. But he knows, and I know, that it isn't going to count for shit. The head of department is on the warpath. It's the knock to the company prestige, the butting heads with the regulator that is going to cause issues. Issues that move to the very top of the company ladder. He's going to get heat from above, and he's going to want someone to blame. The scalp to be presented, and it's going to be me. So fucking typical, you work hard, you put in the hours, put in the days, put in the effort. You do all you can, take pride in your work, do it properly. Do it better than so many of these miserable fucks who don't do their jobs right, who half arse themselves to the day but have the gift of the gab, friends in high places and other people they can shift the blame to. They work so bloody hard, but no one notices, no one ever cares. No one ever looks up, comes over and says, good work, nice job, I appreciate what you do. It was bloody invisible until I fucked up. Only then did they see me, and all they saw was failure, some little nobody they didn't have to give a shit about. After me too and my boss had to run to the toilet, I locked myself in and started to cry uncontrollably. Coming to work, miserable as it was, was the only stable thing left in my life. I sat on the toilet but slid down onto the wet floor. I didn't care. I just had this despair throbbing inside me, pounding inside me, and I had to let it out. I was in the disabled loo which offered some privacy, but someone heard me. I got a knock on the door, someone asking, Are you alright? Hello? I covered my mouth, moved away from the door and edged quietly into the corner. They knocked again, tried the door. I trembled, trying to breathe as slowly as possible. They said they were going to get someone. I crawled quickly to the door to listen to their footsteps as they headed away. I was frightened to go out and be seen. I was sure no one was in the corridor, so I chanced it. No one saw me leave. I was lucky. They headed for the stairs where there'd be some privacy. I sat on the steps between floors trying to get my breath back. But that's when the whispers started. The grey shades were near me. I could hear their incessant whispers. I just couldn't take it. I couldn't breathe. I ran down the stairs. I tried to get away from their sound. 
They must have been following me. I could hear them all the way down. Only when I got to the lobby and was surrounded by people did the sound stop. I looked such a manic mess. The security people even lifted an eyebrow. I went outside, hid around the side of the building where there was less people traffic. What was I going to do? They were all against me now. They really were. There was nowhere to go, no place to hide. The sound of the shadows had lifted, but they could be anywhere, waiting for me in any place. I tried to think. I was in a mess. I was in trouble. But I was dealing with two separate problems. Side effects and a work mistake. They wouldn't last forever. I could pull myself together. I could get through this. Jesus, what other choice did I have? I had to get through this. I had to get a grip. Get a grip. I got a call on my mobile. My boss was calling. How long had I been away from my desk? I didn't bother to answer. I just had to get back up there. What would be waiting for me when I got there? I was on a knife's edge. I can't even describe it. I thought I was falling to pieces. Like my body might just collapse under me. I had to walk close to the wall so I could keep myself steady. I don't know how I made it, but I got back to my floor and my boss was there with one of the senior designers. He jokes that they thought I'd jumped off the top of the building. If only he knew. I apologise, say that I went outside for some air that I was feeling pretty ill when I got in, and now I felt a lot worse. My boss says it's good that I made myself scarce, the head of department had walked through the office, and he might have thrown me out the window. He's going to be out all afternoon, so there'll be no stringing me up today. I get to wait until tomorrow. There's going to be a meeting with HR present to discuss my performance. It was just one mistake, I plead. An easy mistake. He sympathises with me again. But it's my job not to make those mistakes. Ultimately, I am responsible. He says I can take the afternoon off as I'm not well. But I'll need to think of my response to consider my defence. It's not an official disciplinary. Not in name, anyway. It just might as well be. I find myself riding the tube around London for a few hours. I was supposed to be thinking in my defence, but all I could think of was how many pills would it take. Where at home could I hang myself? Where could I get the rope? Could I really do it there? Could I really do it here? On the underground? Just step off the platform? I would need to time it right so the train didn't have time to stop. Or would jumping on the live track be enough? Which one was it? In the end I did nothing. I'd like to say I'd changed my mind, but I just thought I'd fuck it up and make things worse. I went home and sat in front of my computer trying to think of what to say in the meeting. It was my responsibility not to make those mistakes. I could complain and moan about conditions, a lack of appreciation and so on, but I had fucked up. And that's all there was to it. As it got dark, I got a supportive message from Anya, asking if I was okay. I was lifted briefly by the fact that she cared, but then I got distracted by what I should say back to her. I ended up not replying because I couldn't decide. I started to think the easiest thing to do was just to surrender. The head of department wanted blood, so why fight? Make him look like the one in the wrong by admitting I'd made a simple mistake. Point out that these things rarely happen. Make his response seem totally overblown. Maybe that would work. It was the best I could think of. I slept so little that night, kept imagining myself being frog-marched out of the building. You'll never work in this business again. It's not like they could fire me for one mistake. I've been there for years. But they'd find a way to ease me out. Once they want you gone, they can find a way. I wouldn't be the first. Those miserable fucks know how to get you. Maybe I'd be lucky and get a payoff. I looked an absolute wreck that morning. I was so groggy. I'd almost forgotten about the shadows. I hadn't even bothered to look for them in the station that morning. 
I actually thought maybe I'd finally seen the last of them. The meeting was set for 11am, making it hard to avoid Anya and explain to her why I hadn't answered her text. I even kept my emails off in case anyone in the team asked me about the meeting. I think they all felt too awkward to come and talk to me. They could see that I was in a mess. I kept my head down in my cubicle so no one could see me until the time came. My boss appeared by my side and asked me to come with him. They were there waiting for me in a sterile meeting room with the sun shining too brightly through the windows. The fat-headed department looked like a pig about to stick its snout in its dinner. To his right was a sour-faced woman from HR. I didn't know her name, but her and the head of department were thick as thieves. My boss sat next to me and it started. The HR woman talked for a bit about the process and why we were here. She talked about the complaint a little and then handed things over to the head of department who started to lay into things. He complained at great aggressive length as I'd expected. My boss interjected a few times, but I wasn't even listening. I don't know what was said. I nodded and said yes a few times, but as soon as I walked through the doors, all I could hear were the whispers. They were there with me in the room, the shadows. Their voices invaded my head and after that I was lost. These people could have offered me their apologies and given me a 10k pay rise and I wouldn't even have noticed. I felt paralysed. These whispers washed over me, filled my head. Was that them there? Could I see silhouettes standing behind the judge and jury? Shapes just visible in the sunlight? There was only one thought in my head as the whispers overwhelmed my consciousness. How hard would I have to jump at those windows to break through? We were nine floors up, high enough to ensure a sudden violent end. Make a nice scene of it all, very dramatic, very messy. And they'd know they did it. They'd know they'd pushed me too far. A small bit of comfort before the end. Then it would be the end. The end to the misery, the suffering, it could all be over. I just had to break through. Could it be done? I'm not unstrong when it comes down to it, but that glass is made not to break. Would I have a chance? Could I do this one thing? Is this a challenge I can rise to? Not to have to face any of this any more. To not live this life any more. It was the only thing I truly wanted to do. They stopped talking. They'd stopped a few moments ago and noticed me looking through them. They were confused. My boss put his hand on my shoulder. I looked at the judge and jury. And I rose from my chair and walked to the door and left. I marched straight down the stairs. No one rushed to follow me. I went to get my bag. It was under my desk. Some of the team noticed me and turned their heads like meerkats as I made for the door. I still had some in my bag. The pills. I'd forgotten that. I'd put some in my bag to take at work and then forgotten to throw them away. As I entered the fire exit and descended the stairs, I dug my fingers into the blister pack and took out each one, a total of 14 pills, and swallowed them one after another, a week's dose all in one. I walked all the way down to the reception. I didn't have my entrance card and leapt the barriers, disregarding the complaints of the security men. I wondered how long it would take for the pills to get into my system. I walked around the building three or four times. My mobile went off in my pocket. I dropped it down the drain. I clenched my fists and started a firm, resolute march to the station. I was breathing heavily as I reached the escalator and journeyed down. I walked into Liverpool Street and wandered through the main hall looking around me. They were here. They had to be here. They hadn't left their nest. I knew it. My instincts told me. Where are you? I screamed. It seemed as if the whole station turned to look at me. And then tried not to look at me. Because that's Londoners for you. Where are you? I shouted again. I know you're here. Show yourselves. Less people were looking now. They were giving me more space. I breathed in and breathed out. They might be hiding, but they were here. Don't be shy. Come out. 
I was turning around and around, making myself dizzy. And then the whispers came. I laughed. The whispers, the familiar whispers. I was calling them out and they were answering my call. If they wanted me, now was their chance. They could come and take me away. Do whatever it was they did to people. It didn't matter. They didn't need to be coy. I was offering myself to them. Come on, I shouted. As gradually they started to appear, shifting ethereally through the station, circling around me like a pack of dogs, like a storm around its eye. Come and get me! The circle got smaller and smaller as I watched them surround me. One must have slipped from the pack and came straight at me. I turned right into it. It came over me like hot, sweaty air and I almost screamed. Everything went dark. Everything was silent. Everything stopped. I stopped. When I found myself breathing again, I felt like I hadn't done it in an age. I felt the ground under me. I was lying on the floor. My eyes opened and I gasped for air. I must have collapsed. I was on cold, hard ground. But not where I fell. I'd been dragged across the station. I was near the second entrance, the one on ground level near the suit and card shops. It was night now. The station was closed. Shutters sealed the entrance and covered all the shop windows I was closed in. All sound was absent. There were no trains moving, no footsteps, no sounds from outside, no sound of cars or night buses, no late-night revellers, nothing. But it wasn't the lost time that got to me, or the silence, or being trapped inside the station. What got to me was all the bodies. The station floor was covered in bodies scattered from end to end, bodies of all ages, young, old, black, white, tall, short, fat, slim. It was a very diverse massacre. There were hundreds, maybe thousands of corpses. A vast panorama of the dead. I had to step over them to move anywhere. Some seemed like they could just be asleep. Others wore more obvious battle scars. Legs were snapped, necks were bent and broken. There were holes in heads. Clothes caked in blood, bodies burned to a crisp. Where was I really? I couldn't still be at Liverpool Street. I was there, but I wasn't. Where had all the people come from? Why were we shut inside? Why were the lights still on? Was I dreaming? I didn't feel like I was dreaming. It was as if hundreds had just dropped dead during rush hour, and they'd just sealed them up in the station, like victims of a sudden plague quarantined. But then why did they all look so different? It wasn't just their injuries that singled them out. It was the clothing, the fashions. Even this close to trendy Shoreditch, some looked preserved from a different age. Fresh bodies from the not-so-fresh 70s and 80s and even decades before, perfectly preserved as if they died only yesterday. I had to walk carefully, trying not to tread on anybody or anything coming out of them. And then, surreally, I spotted a cleaner. He was by the underground ticket office. He had this cleaning cart with him, and he was sweeping up around the bodies as if them being there was just normal. I looked around again. He seemed to be the only one here with me. The caretaker of corpses. I walked hesitantly over to him. I didn't want to shout. It seemed disrespectful amongst so many dead people. He was wearing a reflective jacket, but the tatty blazer he wore beneath was a relic of another time. A time when to work on the railways was something you were proud of and that pride was expressed in a fine uniform. In contrast, his trousers were grey and stained, and he had odd shoes on. He had a deep smoker's tan and knotted grey greasy hair. He saw me coming and quite deliberately paid me no attention. 
Hello? I whispered. He frowned and with a slight twist of the neck said, Yes? Where am I? He looked at me like I was an idiot. Liverpool Street Station. He continued to sweep the floor. I kept on. Who are these people? No good asking me. I'm just a cleaner. Where did they come from? He shrugged. They just show up. We'll get new ones quite regular. We're going to run out of places to put them. He lifted and emptied his dustpan into the cart. You're a live one? He asked, only half interested. That startled me. I realised I didn't know. I wasn't sure. Yes, I'm alive, a live one, I said in a panic. Don't often get live ones. Usually they're gone by the time they get here. But you're alive. He smiled wryly. He pulled down the collar of his jacket. Even on his darkened skin, a ring of thick, deep bruises were visible around his neck. He went back to sweeping. I didn't know how to deal with this. How do I get out of here? I pleaded. Out? Mostly it's folk who want in. I don't know if there even is a way out. But you said it was Liverpool Street. There are exits, surely. We find that people don't want to leave, said a new voice. I turned around slowly. All my hairs were suddenly standing on end. Just behind me was a man, not just smartly dressed, but dressed to the nines, tailored within an inch of his life. He wore bright blue, but it was the gleaming shine of his smile that hit you first. His teeth were perfect, as was his hair, as was his everything. It was a moment before I recognised him. He was the man who died, the man killed in the road that day, the man I'd seen followed by the shadows. He was standing in front of me, not just alive again, but practically shining like a light. His voice sent shivers up my spine. Something about the sight of him seemed to send all my senses haywire. I felt euphoria. I felt fear. I felt like I needed to run for my life. You're suffering. I can hear it like a drumbeat. He tapped the side of his head with two fingers. I tried to look away, to back away, but I couldn't move without tripping over a body. Who are you? There was something horrible about his eyes. They were too bright, too blazing. I couldn't look directly at them. It made my head hurt. It doesn't matter, he said. I'm like you. They called out to me, and I heard them. And now I'm here among friends, good friends. He opened his arms wide, in this special place. I was tensing up. When I tried to speak, it was suddenly so difficult. I don't like it here. I could barely get the words out. Something was happening to my body. Do you know who these people are? They're people like me, like you. I was becoming rigid. I was panicking. My heart was pounding. I felt like my jaw was stiffening shut. They're dead, I stuttered. This is a peaceful place, where we can all live together. You're afraid. I can see that you're afraid. I can feel your heart. It beats with pain. It is so hard to let go and face the truth. You're here because you belong with us. We called out to you, and you came. I was paralysed. This is our sanctuary, a place where no one need be afraid. No one here feels despair in their soul. This is a place where no one is judged. We are who we are, and we find comfort and peace together here. He put his hands on my shoulders. His touch made my senses go wild. I wanted to leap out of my own skin, but I couldn't move. I feel the pain in you. I feel your hurt. I feel it all. You've suffered so much. Don't hold back. Show me. How are you feeling inside? Don't be afraid. Just show me. No, he couldn't do that to me. He couldn't talk to me and ask me how I was. I couldn't take that. Christ, I couldn't hold it in. I could barely ever hold it in. I found myself weeping again. 
I felt tears fall down my cheeks. They felt alien like they'd come from somewhere else. I was like you once. We all were. But then we let go. And it was hard and it was frightening. But we all finally found peace. I tried to speak. All I managed was a whisper, a sob. You can't go on like this. You know you can't. This has to end. Let us help you. Let us show you the way. And then we can all be at peace together. All it takes is a step, a woman spoke into my ear. We can help you find peace, said another. The bodies were rising. They were standing up as if they'd only been asleep. I was surrounded by people. Were they dead or alive? I didn't know. Let us help you. We can carry your burden. You don't have to suffer. It's better to let go. The crowd parted. The man in blue led the way. Two of the corpses took me arm in arm and guided me along after him. The crowd cheered and chanted me on my way. Come on, you can do it. All it takes is a second. We can help you. They walked me through the station barriers, the crowd pushing through after me. The man in blue walked halfway along the platform, and my guides, a woman and a man, put me in front of him, my body now an alien thing I could no longer control. There was a rumbling in the distance. All else was quiet again. The crowd was there with me, but they were silent. The man in blue put his arm around my shoulders. Are you ready? I can't even remember if I answered or not, or what I even would have answered. A train was coming into the platform. It brought light with it, a great overpowering light. The time is now. It takes just a moment. He took my head and twisted it around. I was looking down at the rail tracks. The roar of the train grew louder. The light grew brighter. The sound drowned everything out. I felt myself trembling again. My legs were jelly. I was barely holding myself up. Was I in control again? I was standing. I was not falling. It's now or never, shouted the man. It's time. Just let go. I wanted to go. To fall on the tracks. I wanted to do what he said. I wanted to please him. But I couldn't move. I was locked to the spot. My stomach was twisting in knots. My body was shaking uncontrollably shaking. The sound of the train was deafening. It was coming into the platform fast. It wasn't slowing down. The man grabbed me. He grabbed me hard as if to throw me. What are you waiting for? My head turned towards him. His face. In the beaming light it was changed. Deformed. Wrecked. Destroyed. This was his real face. The broken face of a man dragged under the wheels and scraped across the tarmac. I felt him put his weight against me. I looked back to the tracks. He was going to throw me off the platform. The knots in my stomach tightened. My back spasmed. My chin rose. My head went back. I was blinded by the light. I felt my body hit the ground hard. I could taste acid in my mouth. I landed on flat ground. I could feel my body again. It felt terrible. I could hear voices, distant voices. I was aware that people were close to me, but I could only sense them. I could not see. There was movement all around me. The light was gone. It was dark, gloomy again. A shape moved over my eyes. They wanted to know if I was awake. I heard them, but I did not want to answer. I wasn't strong enough. The activity continued. I spasmed again. I was being sick. One of the voices, Anya, she was there. I felt hands under my shoulders. I was being lifted off the ground. Voices asked the crowd to clear. I was placed on a trolley and taken slowly to an ambulance. Alive, unwell, but alive. At the hospital, my stomach was pumped. I felt like someone had taken out my insides, run them across some sandpaper and thrown them back upside down. 
Apparently I didn't talk for days. It's so hard to remember the whole thing was like an out-of-body experience. I didn't say much. One of the few things I do remember is Anya coming to see me. She came to see me and to see if I was okay. She did care about me, and I turned away from her. I told her to leave me alone, because it was just too painful to be near her. I was committed. They took the whole pill-swallowing thing as a suicide attempt. There were no other explanations, and I never really told them the full story of all the shadows and all the bodies. It was weeks before I was able to talk at all about it. I had these nightmares. I had to be sedated when I went to sleep because they would come for me in my sleep. I would see that man's mutilated face and he would just stare at me and wouldn't say a word. He'd glare at me with his horrific eyes for what seemed like endless hours without saying anything. I was a wreck. A mental and physical wreck. I was broken. Totally broken. You don't ever really get over something like this. Not the horror, anyway. The behavioural stuff, the psychosis, yes, you, you can treat that and it's hard. And it takes years and some things you can get better at. But the horror. Those faces, that station, that place. Did I try to kill myself? Or did something else try to kill me? It did finally get me the attention and help I needed. It was a pretty risky cry for help. But finally I became a priority for treatment. But it was a long, long road to recovery. I still am recovering. It was heavy therapy for me, cognitive behavioural therapy, an attempt to repair my damaged patterns of thinking, the constant negative reinforcement. You get your thoughts stuck in a loop and it starts to destroy you. To break the cycle you have to learn to think differently and that's not easy. It's not like being taught a new lesson at school. It's trying to rewrite the very way you instinctively behave that so when someone doesn't smile at you when you order a pint, you don't take it personally. And you really believe it's not personal. You don't just try to tell yourself it's not personal. You actually really believe it. It sounds silly, ridiculous, but that's madness for you. You can't deal with the small everyday stuff other people can deal with. There's no hell like the one you make for yourself in your own mind. And I'm still not free of that hell. You can't just learn to be a whole new person. You can't rewire your own mind overnight. It takes time, years, to unlearn what you would learn in a lifetime. I've still got so much of that anxiety. It's like a rubber band. For all the times I feel confident in my interactions with other people, there'll be a time when suddenly it all comes back and I snap back and it hits me hard. Maybe one day I'll finally get over it and be able to lead a more normal life. A life when I can just be with people and not fear that they despise me and are going to say so. Really, I'm one of the lucky ones. It doesn't feel much like it sometimes, but I'm not dead. I'm alive. And I'm not in that place. Wherever that place was. I mean, I might have actually gone to hell. All those times I hear people say, It was hell at the train station this morning. They really don't know what they're talking about. I guess NHS waiting rooms aren't so bad either, in the wider scheme of things. I still get the nightmares. And when I'm in crowds sometimes, out of the corner of my eye, maybe I see something, maybe I don't. But I get that same sensation of wanting to leap out of my own skin and I just have to go and get as far away from that place, wherever it is, as possible. After the hospital, I went to live with my mother for a while. Arseholes that they might all be, the company still paid me through my illness. Even they thought it was distasteful to cut off someone who'd gone off the deep end. 
I had to go back, of course. I'm saying that, but maybe I didn't. Perhaps we could have parted company over the phone. But I felt like I had to go back. Had to see that place one more time so I could move on. And it was all the same, of course, the office, the people. Nothing physically was different. But yet when I was there, it was as if everything was behind a sheet of glass. Everything seemed to be a different colour. And I felt like if that glass was shattered, the world beyond would just come through. That somehow the world was at its weakest here. There was just a thin layer between this world and a dark place somewhere else. Whenever I get that feeling, when I think I've seen the shadows or the man in blue, I wonder to myself whether I've found another one of those places where the world we see and believe in is so thin. Thinner than it is anywhere else. And there's some other place beyond. Somewhere frightening just beneath. Where evil, real evil exists and lives and can tear us apart. I saw my colleagues there back in the office. And I spoke with some of them. It was even nice to see them. And there was Anya, of course, and I shared a quick drink at the cafe with her and tried to pretend I was all mended and fine. She was caring, she was kind, but we've not been in touch much recently. I took the bus there. I couldn't face the station. Not at least from the underground. I had to approach it slowly, work myself up to it. Even as I approached the escalator entrance, I felt that physical revulsion. I almost turned back, but I didn't. And I went down there and it was normal. It was how people see it every day. I couldn't see any grey shadows. And I couldn't hear any whining static sound in my ears. But they were there, those creatures. Whatever they are. They were there somewhere. That's the thing about despair. You can't see it. You can't hear it. But it's there. And it's always closer than you think. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. Today's story features in the book 14 New Ghost Stories, which is available for Amazon, iTunes and other book retailers. And if you'd like to read the latest New Ghost Stories, visit my substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com. This podcast is written, presented and produced by David Paul Nixon. If you've enjoyed listening, please support the podcast by leaving a review on any platform and subscribing to hear future releases. You can find out more about New Ghost Stories at my website, newghoststories.com, and read the latest from me on Twitter by following at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, we take a trip to the seaside where a holiday romance takes a terrifying turn. <laughs>